want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. Broadway looks different for everyone. Broadway looks unattainable for people. There's there's an unattainable version. And there's people that have were born into the industry. And then there's, you know, nep- nepotism. And nepotism, people are all up in arms about nepotism. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces, in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I um really love that we're back in the Broadway theater space again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We've had on Stacy Wolf from Princeton, who's a musical theater scholar. Uh, we've had Eric Champney talk about being a playwright and carry the musical, getting Betty Buckley and Lindsay Haley's attention and Charlotte Dembois. Um, so I'm so excited because I think I found out about this current guest from my good friend, Rye Myers, who I think they're connected somehow. But Rye Myers came on, Jeffrey Schmelkin about an off-Broadway play. So there's a lot in the catalog after you listen to this episode first. I want to introduce my guest because I love his podcast. It's been filling my ears recently. So first, I'm joined with Michael Kushner. So hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi. I am about to go into his bio, which first he's the self-proclaimed multi-hyphenate in the theater community. First multi-hyphenate on the podcast um, who's claimed that term. 
Uh, he is New York City's leading multi-hyphenate, the executive produ producer of the Emmy-nominated series Indoor Boys. He has served as the director of programming for The Green Room 42. He's the owner of Michael Kushner Photography. He's been published in The New York Times, Vogue, Playbill, and more. Oh, Jesse Green, I've had on. If you're listening, Jesse, New York Times, Michael Kushner. Uh, let's get him in the New York Times more. No, I know Jesse <laughs> Green. Jesse Green can't do that. But uh, conflict of interest. Uh, he, Michael, is also the creator of the Dressing Room Project, which is really cool. He photographs actors prepping for their roles on and off Broadway. He holds a BFA in musical theater from Ithaca College. Whew, there's so much that I love and we're going to get into because I think all of this in his bio demonstrates what is meant by multi-hyphenate. And recently he, well, wrote a book, but he's the creator of the podcast Dear Multi-Hyphenate with the Broadway Podcast Network. And he recently published How to Be a Multi-Hyphenate in the theater business, conversations, advice, and tips from the dear Tips from Dear Multi-Hyphenate. So there we go. I hope I did your bio justice, Michael Kushner. You did. And it's it's always fun hearing a bio right back to you because it's like, oh, yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Because <laughs> you forget all of the projects you're involved with. Um, Sometimes I forget them in the moment, too. And I realize, oh, I should check that email, shouldn't I? Well, I should say, too, you're also a member of Actors' Equity. But yeah. I'm sure other aspects of your bio will come in as we're talking yeah. because you've created. Well, let's just start with the multi hyphenate in the room, which is when did you hear the phrase and discover it in your own life? Like, mm. because it's such a specific concept that I needed to know how did Michael hear about this idea of being a multi-hyphenate yeah the first time i heard the word my friend mj mcconnell uh was asking me like what we were at an event and she was like what are you what's going on and i was saying you know everything and she went you're such a multi-hyphenate and i was like oh what is that word and then i like googled it and it, the definition was like so a celebrity who does a lot of things. And I was like, why is it got to be? And then I like really went on the journey of why do I feel like that word? Um, I relate to that word so much. And it's because that's how I was trained in theater, not even from when I first did my first show, which I was, but you know, I was, it all comes back to the Titanic and you're like, what? But I, I have a, I have a, an answer to that. So you, what I was so obsessed with the movie Titanic when it came out for multiple reasons. And um, when it's when I was seven years old and my grandma took me home and she said, why don't we write? So, okay. So my first grade teacher was, uh, tired of hearing me talk about the Titanic, made me look up another shipwreck. I discovered the Andrea Doria. And my grandma was like, why don't you, why don't we write together the Andrea Doria movie like the Titanic? And on the title page, it says, 
written by Michael Kushner, starring Michael Kushner, produced by Michael Kushner, directed by Michael Kushner. So that was even before I started performing. So I had in my mind that I could just do, I could just do whatever I wanted when it came to telling a story. And then I started performing and my first show it was at a children's theater that I absolutely love um, uh, and owe so much to. And that's the Carl Springs Center for the Performing Arts, Next Stop Broadway, um, uh, helmed by the incredible Cynthia O'Brien. And when I was cast in Mary Poppins, we sat down and wrote the script together and made our costumes. And there was that multi-hyphenate experience embedded in that. And then as I got older and started working professionally and I started going to training programs and went to it was on full scholarship in my high school for um theater, uh Elena Garcia. Uh our finals in in sophomore year was to write our own one-person shows, but as a class, we produced them and directed them and designed them. But she also, a leading multi-hyphenate in the theater community in the Miami area, she's a four-time Carbonell Award winner. She has her own theater company. She writes, directs, produces. I mean, that's what she does. And, that, and then when I got to Ithaca, Cynthia Henderson did the same exact thing. So I've always been around people that do that, that multi-hyphenate artists who have multiple proficiencies, which cross-pollinate to help flourish professional capabilities. So I rewrote the definition being like, it doesn't have to be a celebrity. It could be any, any artist who has multiple proficiencies as long as they cross-pollinate. Yeah. Well, and in your podcast, you do provide that Mel Brooks really got known as being a multi-hyphenate in the 1970s like there's some history with mel brooks you're right actor direct well writer director i'm just thinking of even um uh i'm trying to think what is his most recognizable performance performance i would say he was pretty iconic in um, History of the World Part One. Yeah. Okay. Of of his most popular movies, I think History of the World Part One. Uh, you know, he plays. Um, oh God, what's what's his? Uh, now I'm caught off guard, so I can't remember the title name. No. But is his character name? But you know, he he's in the the Roman scenes mm. oh 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 he's um the he's the comic so what's his name he's the he play he plays he plays the palace he plays caesar's palace what is his name i can't think of it but I, it will come to me in the middle it will, of the sentence it will come to us or it will come by way of uh of google of google <laughs> yeah but well actually too i mean when i think of history of the world i'm always thinking of um uh Madeline Kahn and her brilliant. Mm. Oh, she was the Empress Nympho. Mel Brooks was Comicus. There comicus. You go. <laughs> I said it. He's the comic. I, there the you comicus. go. Yeah, you got there. Because um, I, I just have the image of Dom DeLuise eating the grapes while he's while he's the set for him at the palace. It's it's such a great scene. But um, but yes, actor, writer, producer, director um, on so many of his projects, uh, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, History of the World Part One, 12 Chairs, To Be or Not to Be, Silent Movie, The Producers, all of that stuff. So um, 
such a leading player for me because you know i grew up with his movies so i was like oh he could do it i could do it (laughs) well and i think it's so intriguing because you start your book with this beautifully moving um forward from your uh high school um well it says prep school but i'm assuming that's a high school yeah Um, yeah 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 yeah. uh teacher theater educator elena maria garcia Mm -hmm. and she jokes about you having some dorothy hamill style haircut like a bowl cut um but she said right away she noticed something so unique about your authenticity that you were um just approaching the theater aspect very differently than your peers. Like, yeah. Was that something you were aware of in the moment? Like I'm doing something against the grain or moving in a different direction. Like I'm not just so eager to get the part or letting everything be about how much, um, will everyone favor me because I'm so-and-so in the musical or the play that, yeah. What were you, what was your process during that time with her? Hi, this is Andrew and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, And also, We just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our, in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. I never, I never even in college, um, 
I never played into politics of like, I'm a senior and I should be booking this thing. I always, I always was very honored if I was cast in something, even when I was a senior, always, always, always. Um, and even when the, you know, I was in the ensemble of the pre-Broadway triad of On the Town, the 2014-2015 revival that went to Broadway and played the lyric, I was in that at Barrington Stage and, you know, the ensemble all of the ensemble except one person got fired and I was including the people that were let go and were not brought to Broadway. And even then I was literally, I was like, you know, I had just moved to the city. So I was like, golly gee, wow. I'm really a part of the industry. I got fired from a Broadway show. Um, but uh, so I was never like, if I wasn't cast, I would have a shit fit because I would always find other stuff to do, find ways to tell stories. So I do want to start with the Dorothy Amell haircut. And this does tie into why I probably didn't really care about, about like the, any drama. And that was because um, I was already a working child actor. I was working professionally in the, in the industry. And I had just finished doing the Loman family picnic by Donald Margulies, who uh, and playing Stewie at the old Caldwell Theater in Boca, and Rachel Bay Jones played my aunt, and um, and we had to get haircuts that looked like the Beatles because the boys loved the Beatles and they wanted um, Beatle haircuts. So mine was growing in because I had just finished the show, mm. so I looked like a prepubescent lesbian with a rolling backpack, and um. And, you know, Garcia was Garcia always taught me how to just play the game, like, like play ball. So I was at my locker right outside of her drama room. That's where I wanted my locker to be, you know, could have been anywhere in the school, but that's where I wanted it to be. And I remember she came up to me, she goes, I need someone to play son of Macduff in the Scottish play. That role hasn't been cast yet. You want to, you want to do it. And, um, I said, yeah, sounds good. So I like joined rehearsals later because my voice hadn't even changed yet. And I looked very young. So um, she had me play the kid. I had a great death scene. I was already like, I was so honored to be on that stage with all of these people. And um, it was just a play ball thing. There were plenty of semesters that I didn't get cast and I didn't really, it's not that I didn't care. I just knew that I was going to be busy regardless. So, um, yeah, I brought that mentality into the rest of my career. Just, okay, well, you know, I did the EPA circuit, the ECCs. The, I have a manager now, but, you know, I was really, really, I was that musical theater actor moving to the city, that post-grad, going to every EPA, every ECC, you know, nailing down that agent you know, really just doing everything and nothing but I tried everything and nothing bit. And I realized it was because no one was telling, no one was producing the stories I wanted to tell and no one wanted me to tell those stories. And it's because they didn't feel, they didn't sit right with me because they weren't what I'm so used to doing is telling stories that are so specifically me that, um, and I think that read in the audition, I think that read um, and when I'm casting things, it's usually when people go, who the fuck can do that? 
Michael Kushner can do that. And oftentimes those things are few and far between. So I don't work all the time as an actor, but when I do, it's wonderful and I can't wait for more. Uh, but I keep myself busy in the theater in other ways. Mm-hmm. Well, just for everyone listening, what is EPA and ECC? They say ah, like yes. industry I sh- terms. They are, I should say that. So uh, EPA is an equity principle audition and ECC is an equity chorus call. So there are two different types of auditions for equity members and non-equity members if you know there's time or there's openings for them. So, um, but yes, they are required auditions that are put forth by the union um, so that equity members can be seen for equity projects yeah and um you know i feel that your experience with your theater educators it's so empowering um just as an educator but someone who i had a musical theater background and was going to go for musical theater um in new york city i had like toured um it'll come to me marymount there we go um, mm-hmm. but then I went into the English and, uh, humanities route and now I almost have my PhD, but musical theater has always been, I taught a Broadway musical class at Stony Brook, got to take my students during spring break to Wicked and Phantom. And, you know, I think of Renee Chambers Lisiago, one of my South Jersey theater educators, and we had main stage in South Jersey, which <laughs> is a summer theater um uh Ed Facilla uh runs it and Joe Brettschneider who just stepped down. But um so hearing all of your experience of how important theater education is, especially when you're a child, that like for me, yeah, maybe I will, I think I will return to theater in some capacity, but like it's always a part of what you were instilled of that experience and learning. And I was just curious, Michael, like, how do you feel you got to be a fame, right? And this is something that has been so viral on TikTok. Have you seen the whole um, woman talking about how many have an uh, acting degree in Bad Cinderella? Okay, so you've seen that. I'm just curious. Um, first, like how important is it not to necessarily have the acting, to have an acting degree, but for you to just be a child who goes through a theater program compared to someone who finds theater later in life? Like, do you think there is a difference from you starting young compared to someone who finds that passion later? Like, can you still end up, um, you know, doing projects or it? Yeah. It, I know it's a complex question, but it's not a complex question <laughs> at all. Um, I don't know where, I don't know what the stake is for her to say this. Um, because 
that is a complete reflection on gatekeeping and privilege in the industry. So by you saying that you have to have a BFA to be on Broadway, one, it's not true. I know so many people that do not have BFAs and have been on Broadway that have gotten their degrees in college, engineering, pre-med, you know what I mean? Like so many different things. And they're talented and they have a vibe and a look and a confidence and that gets them on stage. Are they, I think then we also need to go look and see what those colleges are because there's some colleges that basically have a direct-to-Broadway route and that also needs to be taken, uh, um, uh, taken a look at because – other colleges, you know, have incredibly talented kids. So why aren't why aren't they being considered just as much as other colleges? There's a lot of layers here, but no, you do not need a BFA to be on Broadway. Um, I think that be getting a BFA is a great option, but it is not a requirement. I think being incredibly talented. And being a good person and an open person and a and a talent, you just you know being op open and showing up and having having good work ethic, and talent and talent and 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 work ethic and dedication and growth is what you get uh, as how you get on Broadway, not because you gave a college sixty thousand dollars a year and you have this these three letters attached to your name. I mean, I've sat behind the table and all I do is look and see where they went to college. I don't, I don't, I see if they got a BFA, but just to see if there's like, you know, a conversation to be had about it, not because it makes them more talented. Um, I think there are networking situations that are built into BFA programs, but not every, not, but there are non-BFA programs that have better networking situations than BFA programs. And some BFA programs don't have them at all. I mean, in my book, there's one artist that in the networking chapter that says her BFA did not help her. And it's a, and it is from a very prestigious school did not help her advance in the industry at all. Did not make her feel prepared so I don't understand why this woman is going on TikTok and 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 telling people that that's the only way. Look at look at everything. Okay, well, that's this one show, but why don't we look at all? Why don't we look at all of the playbills out there? Why don't we ask everyone? And and it's just it's a form of gatekeeping, and also that means that people have to be able to afford four-year BFA programs, which are can be very expensive in the 60, 70, $80,000 brackets. So you're, you're saying, hey, it sucks you're poor, but you can't be on Broadway because you didn't get, you can't, you didn't get your BFA, so you can't pay for it. I welcome opinion and I welcome civil conversation but you can't say that's the only way and there's some you know some exceptions to the rule it's like 
no. People train, people show up, people are good, and then that's how they get cast. And and also they're networking, but there are many other ways to network other than a BFA program. I think the networking in my BFA program, there is such thing called the Ithaca Mafia, and it's a really great network of people, but I network completely on my own. Mm-hmm. Completely on my own. So yeah, I don't need a college. No one else does to do the networking for them. And it's in my book. How did there's a chapter on networking and what I think you need to do. So just literally get a book for $35 and help you. You know what I mean? Yeah, get Michael's you. book. <laughs> if you if you don't find yourself, if you can't find yourself in a college spending $65,000 a year and to, you know, graduate with a networking system, buy my book, learn how to network if you have no place to stop and see you on Broadway. <laughs> yeah, well, and what I love is in academia, I always say my theater background prepared me for academic politics in terms of auditioning mm-hmm. and in terms of networking, because as I brought up, Renee, one of my theater mentors always said that she noticed I was always taking notes. I would always show up. And she said, that's the most important part is showing up, taking notes, taking the instruction. I also went to ballet school when I was younger in Philly and you know, we can we could talk about I want to get to other arts and culture because I feel um, the multi hyphenate aspect isn't as or I don't see it as present in some mm. solidified organizations like um, ballet, for example, because mm-hmm. I do think ballet is one of the more um, hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Um, but. What I really love that you bring to the table, Michael, with all of your knowledge, experience, discussions in your book, but even on your podcast, of course, is just this feeling of how the networking process revealing how transparent it can be, which is even in academia, just because you don't go to an Ivy League college for a PhD does not mean you're not going to achieve a network, you just have to sometimes be a little more entrepreneurial and take risks in putting yourself out there. And I've seen that there's been some really exciting projects from those who, you know, take those risks, who start a podcast, who create more of a media space for themselves or, you know, aren't just relying on this gatekeeping as you put it, but I agree because in academia, there's a lot of gatekeeping too. If you're just thinking this is the job I need and right for the theater community, I loved, and I sure you saw it too, that growing up, I was part of community theater, like how thriving Mm -hmm. that is, that it doesn't have to just be on the 42nd street marquee that there's so much happening off Broadway and in all different you know, rural, suburban cities. Um, But you've had all of those experience and all of those different types of companies, right? I mean, now you're in New York City, you have the Broadway connections, but like, what was something that maybe 
surprised you about when you did start to get a Broadway network? Like, mm -hmm. was it what you thought it would be? Or has the industry, um, yeah, thrown you for a loop? Um, it, That is a really loaded question. Because there are some nights that feel like Broadway, you know, jazzy and martinis and, you know, the smell of the grease paint, roar of the crowd, like truthfully. And then there are the days that are like, I've seen people at their absolute worst. I have um, been there for people, you know, at their, at their worst and um they have been there for me at my worst as well and um there's no glitz there's no glamour it's um raw emotion raw and you know so, some of the some of the most confident talented people still ask themselves what am i doing and i think that is definitely one of the bigger discoveries of networking and this industry is that like it's still real life for many people i still there are tony winners i know that are still asking when is my next big project or like what next and uh yeah, there. It's just it's different for everyone. It's uh, it, it, it's it's different for everyone, and Broadway looks different for everyone. Broadway looks unattainable for people. There's there's an unattainable version, and then there's people that have were born into the industry, and then there's you know nep nepotism and nepotism. People are all up in arms about nepotism. Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower boiler room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at that OL Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giant starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? 
And I'm like, a mechanic gets to pass down his business to his kid, to their kid. You know, there are families of doctors, there are families of lawyers, there are families of whatever. Cops, firefighters. Exactly. There's allowed to be families of artists and actors. And it's okay. Sorry. It is. I actually do believe that it is. Um, And the theater is a challenging, the theater is a challenging environment. So if they are taking your jobs, right? If these Nepo babies are taking your jobs, all I can say is just do it better. Do it better than them. Do it different and do it better than them. What does Sondheim say in Sunday in the Park with George? Anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. Here's the thing about being a multi-hyphenate, right? And social media. How many times have I done something original and new, and then next thing you know, five other people are doing it? It's true. Being in this industry and being a multi-hyphenate and being a creative is difficult because what you have to constantly do is you have to put something out in the world, understand that it's going to be molded and adapted and changed, but then you also have to stay one step ahead of everyone else, put something else out in the world and then go, okay, what's next? Because your name doesn't stay on something forever, right? Like... I had a really interesting conversation once. This is this is how to not network, by the way. I had an interesting con uh um conversation with a client where he texted me going, Hey, I I'm going to start a podcast about being a multi-hyphenate. I'm not looking for your permission. I'm just asking for your blessing. And I went, and I went, because in my mind, I'm like, how not creative can you be? Because that is not a new angle. I did it. That's my angle. Why don't you take something and do a new, even if you are doing something on the multi-hyphenate, like at least say that, but no, it was basically. Now it's pastiche. Right. It's a, it's an imitation, which is probably, you know, never lives up to what's already been done. I mean, it is a, it is a nice reflection in marketing. They always say, if you have names that are similar, it means that you started a trend, but What's sad is that client didn't find their voice, right? Like, because... Well, like, it never happened. They, they, yeah. It never happened because, I, because I'm protective of my art. Like, I don't know if you've ever walked around the city and seen the graffiti that says, protect your art. Mm, okay. I protect my art. So I said, and, you know, I have a lawyer. So I literally was like, uh here's the thing like you know um you know i i think i gave them an out i was like hey i actually don't oh this is when they said that i just want to you know let you know and then i was like oh i actually don't know if that's like the best idea because this is like sort of my brand this is like how i contribute to the world and how i communicate with the world around me 
And then that's when they responded being like, I'm not asking for your permission. I'm not asking for your permission. I'm just, I'm just telling you out of respect and getting your blessing or something like that. And I was like, well, you're not getting my blessing. And I'm going to have my lawyer talk to you because, you know, there are things that, um, are trademarked and they're, you know, so it's like, I want to, we want to make sure that if you're going to do this and then literally 30 seconds later, I literally, I literally said, Hey, have your people call, you know, my lawyer. So we could talk about this. And 30 seconds later, Hey, actually just spoke to the team. We decided not to go on. Uh, we decided not to, not to do this, but thanks so much. Hmm. And I'm like, don't, don't bullshit a bullshitter. Like this industry is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Take your experiences and turn it into something. The reason why I have a book out about this and a podcast, you know, going on 80 some odd episodes is because this is my life. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not just like I dabble in a few things. It's that I do multiple things. I do them actively. And not only do I actively do them, but I figure out how to actively tie them together. Multi-hyphenating is my life. Yeah, the podcast is a reflection of your lived experience. Exactly. So that's why I'm protective over it. And it's like, just do your version of that. Like, Tell me more. Yeah. And what's sad is like, cause I've had so many and anyone listening to this, um, you know, Michael's advice is so pertinent because I've had so many who've been inspired by, as I'm sure you have too, by your podcast, like by my pod, by my podcast as well. And then we have creative discussions and then they find what their niche is. And I love that, like supporting their agency over their creative work. But right, you also have a boundary, as do I. And it reminds me of your live Broadway con episode in the summer where um, one of your panelists had this amazing quote about um, like knowing when to say no mm-hmm. and just creating that boundary. And right in that scenario, you said, no, <laughs> like this is my art. And you're literally just taking creative property yeah and also, yeah and also saying no is really important garcia has you know she's still trying to get me to say no to more things but um as a mentor you know she's always like you gotta say no you gotta say no but i don't want to miss out on anything i like working you know i love working so i don't i don't want to miss out on anything and um saying so, you no know, is really interesting because it's like there's so many different ways to say no and so many reasons to say no. Um, sometimes I have to say no to myself. You know what I mean? Sometimes I have to say no to the impulses that I have uh, or just put them in the back burner and say, not right now. Sometimes I have to say no to, you know, one of the chapters that I have in my book is about socially responsible artistry. And it's the final chapter. And I think that's the most important thing other than the why I bookend it with the two most important things. And that's understanding why you do what you do and socially responsible artistry, which is where 
what we do is important and it helps shape the world around us so and it's it's socially responsible we don't take up space in a negative way we don't we don't take space from other people that need it more than us we we elevate that how do we do that through our art like and it also raises the stakes for your art it just creates better art anyway and aaron gross um has a great quote in the book where he basically says what if socially responsible art is just presumably that all art is better you know mm -hmm. and so there are some stories that i like want to write or some things that i want to do that i just say no it that's it's that it could be better i could be better and and maybe that could be better because i'm not giving it enough space so i have to say no to that right now and also you know i i i, I don't believe in I believe in I don't believe in free work, but I believe in unpaid work and the different and there's a difference there. I believe in volunteering and donating our time to a point where it does not overwhelm you and you're not losing, you know, resources or the ability to eat or sleep or you know what I mean? Like you have to establish that boundary. If you can do it, if there's, you know, the if it's a, you have the right bandwidth for that um free work is when you give when you work for free there's no compensation not spiritual compensation not monetary compensation not a, a trade it's where you're just offering a service yes for nothing in return and you don't uh, feel empowered by the work right exactly and unpaid work is could be any of that but you are feeling empowered or you are getting paid in another way or, and you agreed to that. Right. So, um, so I don't think you should do it all the time, but I think that there are certain, you know, and saying no to the, you know, because what I, what I do say often is like people, it's like blood in the water to sharks. As soon as you say yes to doing something free or unpaid, you will get about 10 emails shortly thereafter from people that are like, hey, I have this charity that I'm doing or this event that I'm doing. Um, we don't have a budget for a photographer, but you would be, we would provide this for you or whatever. And it's like, I did a lot of those when I was younger because of my conscience, because I was like, oh, I have to say this because this this group of people is being served or this animal is being served or whatever. You never know who's going to be there. And it's true. You never know who's going to be there. You are donating time to be a part of something, but honestly, eventually it gets really tiring and people treat you the amount that you are getting paid and that's zero happens all the time well not all the time it happens 99 percent of the time which is why i continue to donate my time to the people that do treat me and others with respect yeah. um because it feels like they are paying me even though they are not they are treating me like they are they're respecting me but then there are other people that are literally like oh we're not paying him we don't really need to we don't really 
it, it's it, whatever. And you sense that and it's like, okay, well, taking them off my list, I guess, you know? Yeah, well, and, oh, and I remember now, I think, wasn't it, the panelist said, if it's your, if something, it was either if it's your urgency, it's not my emergency. Ah, uh, yes, there's, there's a few of, there's a, there's a, yes, your, what I'd like to say is that your emergency, no, what do I say? Now I have that one stuck in my head. Um, your emergency doesn't constitute as an emergency for me or something like that. But it's true. It's true. It's like just because you are on a deadline, just because you're freaking out, just because you need whatever doesn't mean that I have to oblige to that. I'll help you out as best as I can. But then there's like, you know, there are a lot of clients that are like, oh, my God, I need that photo right now. I'm like, OK, well. I have a rush policy. And if you pay me X amount of dollars for a rushed photo, I promise to get it to you within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But there's a cost, so, of course. Right. So I get compensated for it. You know what I mean? And that's the boundary that I'm willing to put forth. So I say no. I said no to that unpaid work. Mm -hmm. And I turned it into a, an experience where I get compensated for it. And that's, I think that's what a lot of people don't under, a lot of artists don't really anticipate in this industry is that everyone has a skill set that they can turn into a proficiency in which they get paid for. And that's a lot of the basis of the multi-hyphenate, right? Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends, you've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E -E, Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. Is that I say that it's multiple proficiencies, but a lot of the proficiencies are made up by skills right by skill set so like i i um one of my skills is photoshop right but i'm not a graphic designer but i could turn that into like a hyphen a proficiency if i grew that if i was known for but no it's just a skill that i use for my headshots and that's what's really cool and a la carte about all of that is like it's up to you figure out how you 
charge for your services and how they affect everything else. So like I'm an actor, photographer, producer, writer, podcaster, educator. Um, when I produce projects, right? Those people come into my studio for headshots because they liked working with me. They like my photos. So they'll come in for, for, for photos. And then that money I use to uh, produce another project or, and that writing like, Hey, look at this. Like, you know, I wrote a book and now I'm, I get to be asked to be on a podcast and then who knows how you will affect my artistry in a positive way. Like, there's just it's it's figuring out the way that everything cross pollinates is the is a huge component to the multi hyphenate. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh no, I love all this because you know you had um, your guests have been so intriguing, but like I was really struck by Alana Levine because mm. I mean, I knew I knew her as an actor, but like when I started to realize, oh, she was in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown as Lucy, but, and other projects, of course. Um, but her podcast, Little Known Facts, she has just like you, this way of tapping into, right? As podcasters, we love process. Like, mm -hmm. right, we love the distance, the perspective of your craft, your art, your writing, you're producing, you're acting, you're um, whatever you are doing in the arts and culture sphere. And I always say, though, not everyone, I'm not urging everyone create a podcast because I don't think everyone is ready for that voice or the public exposure because you are opening yourself, yourself up to the public in a way that um, there's going to be positives and negatives. Um, I mean, in acting, you're really, in theater, you're always, in a way, opening yourself up to the public. But um, what I was curious about is, you get into this discussion with her, Michael, about um, how podcasting really was a self-reflective, introspective project for you both. And I feel that way too, but I'd love for you to mm -hmm. speak about that, which is what did it teach you once you started to interview, um, have these conversations about your own identity that didn't exist before in your thinking? I have a lot of different ways that I like to communicate with people, right? So like in my studio, in my headshots, I like to communicate with people through a very, uh, character acting based industry based experience it's personalized it's their it's their skill set it's their experiences it's how the business is dealing with them my book is very how to it's third person it's more um step by step heady ethereal but also factual in my podcast i like to communicate to people and show off to a general to a broader group of people and show off my personality it's a little more humorous um and i started the podcast because i think i was feeling like so many people were trying to get to me for information and i was like i see here's the thing where it's like i don't mind 
putting that out in the universe because it's specifically me because it's my conversations with a guest, our relationships. It's like, even if that guest goes on to someone else's podcast, it's going to be a completely different conversation. So it's it's really personality driven. And um, I wanted to do that. My intention was to do that was to connect with an audience that listens to podcasts because not everyone reads. Not everyone is on Instagram, but people actively search for podcasts. So I wanted to connect with those people. Maybe, you know, people don't really scroll through my Instagram, but they got 45 minute commute to and from work. But, you know, I started this just a month or two before the pandemic. And then all of a sudden the pandemic started. So that was a really great way to communicate with my audience and build an audience because people were actively listening to them. And it's like, you know, we were talking about podcast creation, like during the pandemic, 17,000 people, 17,000 podcasts were created per day during the like start of the pandemic. And not many of them lasted past one or two episodes, but they were created, they were started. And I think people realize like, they're like, oh, this is a lot of work, but podcasting is exactly that. It's a lot of work because there are many, many plays. There are many TV shows, whether or not you have a, a visual element to them, but they take a lot of work. They do. There's a lot of setup a guest can reschedule or cancel or whatever. Um, and then there's the technicality of it. And then there's the uh, post and then there's the social media and the sharing and the, the download and the, yes. And the downloads and the oh, yeah. graphics analytics. And all, oh yeah. Exactly. No, I know. <laughs> and all of that stuff. And then, and then, you have to deal with what is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what's it, how is your story relevant in the world? Like, there have been interviews that I have had where I pushed them because another interview was more relevant to something that happened in the news that day and a big story. So, you know, there's a lot of things that go into podcasting for me. And I do it because I, I, because it is a very strong way for me to communicate. Well, and you do an excellent job with your guests. And Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I think what I love is the episode following this, this is a teaser for everyone, but um, once this is released, um, which I'm not telling everyone when we're recording because I have my own behind the scenes of how the schedule gets done. Thematic magic. Yes. Yes. But I always like to do things clustered. It's a genre it's, um, thematic and I'm having David Armstrong on right after you from Broadway nation. And, you know, what I love is both of you are under the Broadway podcast network, but it's so mm -hmm. different. Like he's, into theater history mm -hmm. and bringing guests on to talk about how the musical gets made. And you're talking about, you're talking to those in the industry currently. So I, I feel that, you know, as we're nearing the end of this segment, um, which I'm going to keep everyone in surprise about what that means is I would love for you to talk about, um, 
you know, you've gone through podcasting, you've had so many, and you currently are holding so many um, balls in the air with positions and jobs that you do. What's your advice to those who are in the theater community? Well, I'll put it to you this way. I feel like you brought up the pandemic and that's important because I sometimes wonder, we were all pushed in a way to pivot and to reevaluate our skill sets and where our voice could be heard. Um, and some now feel pressured to go onto social media when they were never comfortable doing mm -hmm. that. And I know like that's every industry. It's not just theater. Um, so how do you now reflect on those who maybe only wanted to uh, book jobs as an actor, but now they feel, okay, now I have to be an educator. Now I um, need to maybe take clients on and do master classes. And I never thought I would do that because I thought I would only be on the stage. You know, what's your advice to someone who's feeling the pressure of maybe needing to take up a job just to survive in this current uh, economic uh, chaotic time yeah. that we're living in. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a it's a loaded question because people make choices out of survival, you know. So I can't just be like, "Are you happy?" Like, there's so many people that aren't happy. You know what I mean? That are working that would love to invest themselves in the arts. And this is hello. This is a, a to piggyback off of what we were talking about regarding the BFA. The woman that's talking saying that BF you have you should have to have a BFA. People have to survive mm -hmm. before getting a BFA. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that there's a lot of things, but like I think asking yourself, like, why do you do what you do? If some a lot of people actually don't even know that they're unhappy. So I guess asking yourself why you do what you why do you do what you do is really important. And you know, that's my first chapter in the book. And I have an exercise that guides you through that and uh, at least helps crack the code a little bit, but, um, but yeah, just starting to make yourself conscious of why, you're, why you do what you do and why you're there. And maybe that and why, means, yeah. And why you're passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. And also maybe you could start adding something that you're more passionate about. If you're not too passionate about what you're doing for income or for your day job or for an out job or whatever, maybe you can go, oh, okay, well, maybe I can put in 15 minutes per day of writing something and then it can become 30 minutes per day and then it can become an hour per day. It's, I think just making yourself aware of that situation is helpful and not judging yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, my last question before we review the current Broadway season, and I even said to Michael, I'm not sure how open he can be, but we're going to be doing it on our Patreon, so it can be as unfiltered as possible. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, since I don't, I'm not necessarily embedded in all of the contacts and networks that Michael is, you know, I can give my hot takes, maybe, <laughs> without thinking I'm offending anyone. Um I mean, I hope that they all become part of my network eventually. You know, 
if you're looking for a scholar to teach a work that you're currently in, call me. But my last question really is about, like I had brought up, there's this really cool podcast right now. I think it's nearing the end, but it's by Rococo Punch and it's the turning point, the turning point. And it's about George Balanchine and the New York City Ballet. And have you heard from those who aren't necessarily, you know, speaking the same language as the theater industry, but say they're in arts, maybe it's opera, maybe it's ballet, maybe it's um, an, uh, painter or, you know, a writer, um, who's like not in the theater community, but they're a creative writer, um, that do you feel that the advice would still be the same in terms of them embracing or seeing that they are a multi-hyphenate, even if their industry is really resistant? Like, how do you deal with the resistance of a very hierarchical industry, like say the ballet community that still really looks to this perfectionist model of like, you must be in the class, like you must be at all times thinking dance, whether it's you're eating, you're exercising, you're in the studio and you're not allowed to go on the outside. Like you must stay in this community. Like, yeah. What would you say to them? Yeah, I, 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 I would say to look at your own industry and see what needs change and see what needs your perspective. Um, I think that's, I think that's where you have to start because I can't speak for the ballet world. I'm not a part of the ballet world, so I don't know about any of the, for lack of a better word, flexibility that the. Um, that that industry has, but you know, it's hard because I'm not, I, I talked about multi-hyphenate from the theater, television and film, like the musical theater and acting television and film worlds. That's where I, that's what the book is about. That's where I uh, communicate, but it's maybe someone can talk about being a, a multi-hyphenate in the doc doctor world or the lawyer world or the ballet world or the painter world like those are experiences the academic world yeah exactly those are experiences i can't really speak on um but i could speak on the theater television and film world so well what i love is you provided a lens and theory about the multi-hyphenate that is transferable yeah. so like and we'll what grow i and adapt yeah this is an approach and well, because we're going to be heading to the Patreon, I want everyone uh, to get their hands on Michael Kushner's How to Be a Multi-Hyphenate in the Theater Business, um, Conversations, Advice, and Tips from Dear Multi-Hyphenate. Um, and also, you know, where can they follow you, Michael, on Instagram? Yeah, I'm at the Michael Kushner on Instagram. Oh, and dear multi-hyphenate. And dear multi-hyphenate. Truth. I'm your press agent right now. Yes, yeah. thank you so much. Okay, so we're going to head to Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. I'm going to ask Michael just a few of his opinions about upcoming musicals that have gotten a lot of buzz and see where he stands on them. Uh, so ambiguous, but that's why you have to go to Patreon. Okay. 
It's only $5 a month, everyone. And support Michael's Dear Multi-Hyphenate Podcast while you're at it, while you're listening to this. Uh Okay, we'll see you in the Patreon. Bye. Head to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. Yes, that's our Patreon. To listen to another 15-minute discussion with Michael Kushner, where he's now going to share his takes on upcoming Broadway shows. And I'm also going to reveal my takes on them, too. Like A Doll's House, Parade, Bad Cinderella, Dancing, Sweetie Todd, Shucked. And I think there's a little more. Okay, so $5 a month gets you access to this discussion with Michael Kushner, who I absolutely adore. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And you also get access to all of our video interviews, all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room catalog and other bonus episodes. There's a lot. So $5 a month. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for buying me a coffee. It allows me to, you know, edit the podcast and just keep on going because I need that energy. Thank you all. And I will be back in the ivory tower boiler room with you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Follow our Facebook page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. And thanks to an amazing team. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. And thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room spring interns. Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Sheila, and Rosie. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room.